Hillary Clinton announced her candidacy for President of the United States on April 12, 2015. Donald Trump announced his presidential election bid the next month on June 16th. So if you feel like this campaign has been going on forever, well, it has been going on a year and a half, uh, and really even more than that. But as you may have heard a little something about, Election Day is finally here on Tuesday. But for now, on this Sunday before Election Day, when it is traditional to give an election sermon, I'd like to invite us to reflect a little on what our UU Fifth Principle calls the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Our UU tradition highly values the right of each individual to follow their conscience, uh, their inner sense of ethics and morality, of what feels right and wrong, uh, especially if their actions and beliefs do no harm to others. And the democratic process of one person, one vote, is an expression of this right of conscience in our governance, both congregationally and as a country. Historically, the right of of individuals to follow their conscience in matters of ethics and of religion uh, was, and in many ways continues to be, a hard-won struggle. Likewise, in order to establish democracy in this land, we had to fight a war of of independence against the King of England uh, so that we could be a representative democracy and not a monarchy where one person gets to decide what the rest of us do and think. However, looking back, it's interesting to note that less than a year before the Second Continental Congress would gather in Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, back then, even the most radical members of Congress professed a strong preference for remaining within the British Empire. As late as August 25th, 1775, Jefferson himself, the future author of our Declaration of Independence, wrote in a private letter about his strong preferences about to mend ties with Britain. At that time, there remained hope that a middle way might be found that would allow the 13 colonies to be free of the British Parliament, but still remain some sort of allegiance to the British crown. But Parliament was unwilling to compromise. The colonists could either be entirely under Parliament's control or they could fight for their complete freedom from the British system. So we declared our independence with these opening words from the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station that the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation." And I just want to briefly consider just how bold that claim was, that opening hymn we sang spoke about a people so bold. 
The U.S. may be a global superpower today, but roll back the clock 240 years, and British, Britain's population was three times larger than ours. Their navy was the true global superpower, and Britain had far more financial resources. Whereas the Continental Congress had no power to tax, and hence very little leverage with which to borrow any money to support uh, any impending war. Nevertheless, we, these 13 colonies with a continental congress that had been operating a mere two years, declared ourselves to hold a, quote, separate and equal station to the British political and legal system, which dated back seven centuries to 1066 and William the Conqueror. And that was just the opening sentence. Turning to the even more famous, and I don't know if you ever noticed this, incredibly long, famous second sentence of the Declaration of Independence, uh, I invite you to hear that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I don't know if any of you hear the play Hamilton. I can't say that sentence anymore without hearing it in the, the rhythm of Hamilton. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whatever for any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying on its foundation, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. That is all one sentence. And I've taken the time to quote it in the midst of this volatile election season to remind us of some of our highest values as a nation. That at our best in this country, now sometimes it was hard won and people died and bled for this, but we have at our best continued to expand the concentric circles of who is included and who has access to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. In that spirit, I want to invite you to hear just one more sentence from the original Declaration of Independence that seems particularly to resonate in this um, particular season in our country's history. The Declaration's third sentence reminds us that our founders, who themselves wanted to avoid division from Britain, if at all possible, also cautioned against further declarations of independence. As we saw 150 years ago in the Civil War, that is no abstract worry. The Confederate States of America tried to declare independence from our union. But in the words of the original declaration, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are often more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Now, there's a lot more to say about the history and significance of the Declaration of Independence. I'd love to go into the details of how Jefferson's original draft was changed significantly, both by a small committee as well as by the Continental Congress itself. I'd love to go into how those words that we were, those bold words of declaring ourselves separate and equal to Britain, how those same words were perverted by the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson to say, to justify racial segregation as separate but equal. 
but instead, for now, I'd like to invite us to shift our focus to some potential parallels for today. We've been exploring the boldness of these comparatively tiny 13 colonies declaring themselves separate and equal to the British Empire. But I invite you to consider that the boldness we need today is not another declaration of independence. We are already too divided from one another, too separate, too individualistic. We need a similarly bold declaration of interdependence that reminds us of how much we need each other, that helps us better take care of one another, that helps ourselves be better taken care of, to have less anxiety about what might happen in our present and our future. As one example of what such a declaration of interdependence might look like, I invite you to hear the words of the nonpartisan, higher ground moral declaration that was collabor- collaboratively written for uh, in the midst of this presidential election season by many progressive religious leaders in our country. 240 years ago, we needed a declaration of independence to guide us. So how might a declaration of interdependence guide us today? Consider these words of the higher ground moral declaration. We declare that the deepest public concerns of our nation and faith traditions are how our society treats the poor. Those on the margins, the least of these, women, children, workers, immigrants, and the sick. Equality and representation under the law. The desire for peace, love, and harmony within and among the nations. Together we lift up and defend the most sacred moral principles of our faith and constitutional values, which are the economic liberation of all people, ensuring that every child receives access to quality education, health care access for all, criminal justice reform, ensuring historically marginalized communities have equal protection under the law. Our moral traditions have a firm foundation upon which to stand against the divide-and-conquer strategies of extremists on both sides. We believe in a moral agenda that stands against systemic racism, classism, poverty, xenophobia, and any attempt to promote hate toward any members of the human family. We claim a higher ground in partisan debate by returning public discourse to our deepest moral and constitutional values. This higher ground moral declaration is an attempt to start not with defending a political candidate and to start not with defaming whoever your opponent is, but instead to start with discerning the moral and ethical values that our conscience calls us toward and then allowing those individuals to use those values as feels right to them to determine which candidate they want to support. To translate this perspective into more explicitly Unitarian Universalist language, we talk a lot about standing on the side of love or answering the call of love. So what might it look like, according to our principles, to vote on the side of love? Here's one response that transforms our UU7 principles. They're printed on the back of each week's order of service. So it takes those principles and translates them into questions for political candidates and or for already elected officials. Consider these. Do your policy proposals reflect the inherent worth and dignity of every person? If elected, how will your everyday decisions demonstrate justice, equity, and compassion in human relations? 
How will you encourage acceptance and growth of one another across party lines? What insights have you learned from your own search for truth and meaning that will guide you as a political leader? What ideas do you have to improve our democratic process? Within our international community, how will you work toward a goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all? And acknowledging our interdependence, how will your decisions impact our planet and future generations? There may well be other factors that will influence your choice of how to vote, and that is your right. But this higher ground moral declaration, as well as these seven ways of what it might look like to vote on the side of love, are ways of factoring your UU values into our discernment of conscience and into our practice of the democratic process. At this point, it may be helpful as well for me to say a few words about, so how does this relate to that whole separation of church and state thing? There's a lot of confusion around that. I think sometimes people flippantly say, oh, well, I guess separation of church and state means that church and state have nothing to do with one another. But if you read through our seven principles, it's clear that making progress on those involves activism in the public sphere. And also, when you think historically, Often in this country and around the world, when social change has happened, it's because people of faith, religious people, have been part of that movement, inspired by their religious values. If you really want to get into the details, the UUA has a free 21-page guide available online titled The Real Rules, Congregation, and the IRS Guidelines on Advocacy, Lobbying, and Elections. But for those of you who don't want to read all 21 pages, here's the highlights. There is no limit, no limit on the amount of time, effort, and expense congregations may devote to working on general issues, civil rights, civil liberties, economic justice, the environment, or peace. Some of the many acceptable activities include advocating positions in the media and to elected officials, educating and mobilizing congregants in the general public, and working in local coalitions and partnerships on issues of social justice, many of these things that we do. What we can't do is spend a substantial portion of our activities attempting to influence one specific piece of legislation. Now, what would constitute a, quote, substantial amount of lobbying? Eh, the courts haven't really said. Uh, but it's certainly clear that lobbying activity that is less than 5% of total activities is acceptable. Basically, the government doesn't want a lobbying organization saying it's a religion and then getting off tax-free. We have no worries on that front. We do so much more than occasionally gathering interested members of this congregation to lobby for the passage of a bill that feels particularly in alignment with UU principles, like same-sex marriage, for example. At the same time, acting for peace and justice remains a vital part of our mission as a congregation. So along with encouraging spiritual growth and building the beloved community, acting for peace and justice is part of what we do. Another limitation I should be sure to mention is that congregations and their representatives, such as me, can do nothing that advocates for or against uh, candidates for public office or political parties. So an important caveat is that this restriction only applies to the congregation as a legal entity or to a person or group speaking in the name of the congregation. So a minister or a congregational member may freely engage in these activities as an individual. So you'll never hear me advocate for or against a specific candidate or political office on your behalf from this candidate, like an official endorsing of a candidate by UUCF. We're not going to do that. 
But just as ministers dating back to the colonial period in this country developed the tradition on the Sunday before Election Day, or actually what they used to do is, you know, before TV and the Internet and all that kind of stuff, people actually went to church and heard a two-hour sermon on Election Day, and then they all went and voted together. We're not going to do that. Uh, but it, there is a strong tradition going back to colonial times of an election sermon about what are the moral values, the ethical values, the right and wrong that should influence elections and elected officials. It would be an abdication of my responsibility as your minister if I failed to speak about the ethical values that are at the heart of our religious tradition and that should inform the ways that we carry out our fifth principle and live into that, this right of conscience and the practice of the democratic process, both in our congregation and in society at large. One of my touchstones for this has always been the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, The Strength to Love, particularly this passage. He writes that the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state. It is rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and critic of the state, but never the state's tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. In the words of the Higher Ground Moral Declaration, recapturing our prophetic zeal for such a time as this means acting for causes like economic democracy, equality in education, health care for all, criminal justice reform, and equal protection under the law. Though ultimately the details are left up to the discernment of your conscience. In that spirit, as we each look within and try to discern what is right and wrong, what does feel moral and ethical in my life, in our life, and in the life of our country and the world, what, how might we be called to act for peace and justice on Election Day and in all the days and weeks to come? As we continue to make that discernment, I invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1018 in your teal hymnal. It's come and go with me to this land.